Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Welcome, and thanks for joining us for a conversation that marks the first 100 days of President Biden's administration and how we're tracking on the road to recovery from a health, markets, and macro economic perspective. As we get started, reminder that I point you to the BMO disclosures on the web link enclosed at the bottom. Given we're talking about medical information, also a reminder that if you need medical advice, please directly consult your physician and or a healthcare professional. In his first 100 days, Biden has spearheaded some bold initiatives, signed a $1.9 trillion pandemic recovery package, doubled the goal for COVID-19 vaccinations, jump-started a climate change agenda. It's been a busy start to a new chapter, and at BMO, we're tracking closely with our own bold ambitions and broad visions as we help our clients navigate changing political, health, and economic environments. This is a pivotal time of recovery and opportunity. We're in some of the hottest markets I've ever seen in my career, whether it's M&A, sustainable financing, equity markets. We've seen accelerated focus on and collaboration towards a net zero world. And we've seen a dramatic renewal of confidence and optimism for the future. To unpack this from a health and macroeconomic perspective, I'm joined today with our medical experts, Dr. John White, Chief Medical Officer of WebMD, Dr. Allison McGeer, Senior Clinical Scientist, Lunfeld Tannenbaum Research Institute for Sinai Health, and our own market strategist, Earl Davis, Head of Fixed Income and Money Markets, BMO Global Asset Management, and Brian Belsky, our Chief Investment Strategist, BMO Capital Markets. Please keep in mind, today's discussion is not intended to be political or a debate. We're here to talk about health, economics, markets, and vaccines. Additionally, we have media interest in the session, so there will be reporters on the line. Dr. White, let's start the conversation with you and your insights on the progress we've made over the last 100 days and what's next. Well, thank you, Dan. And it's great to be with everyone today. Let's talk about the data because I think there are some very encouraging trends. Currently in the United States, there's about 49,000 new cases a day. That's the seven-day average. But keep this in perspective. In January, there were over 200,000 new cases a day. In terms of the number of deaths, the seven-day average here in the United States is around 650. But in January of this year, it was over 3,000. So this is a success of the vaccination program. There's still too many new cases, still too many deaths. You know, we really want to drive this to about 10,000 cases a day, but we're making tremendous progress from where we were in January. And if you look at immunizations in terms of where we are, in terms of one dose, 147 million Americans have received the first shot of the, the two-shot regimen of, of Pfizer and Moderna. That's 45% of the population. And about a third of the population is fully immunized. 
So that is tremendous progress from where we were just a few months ago. And in case you're curious, uh, I wrote this down, out of those uh, hundreds of millions of doses, 130 million are Pfizer, 106 million are Moderna, and 8 million are J&J, just in terms of perspective of where we are in that. But the other good news is that for persons over the age 65, 85% have received one dose, and nearly 75% have received both doses, fully immunized. And that's why we see such a decline in terms of the number of hospitalizations, the number of deaths. And that's really what Operation Warp Speed has been about, to try to get vaccinations to prevent serious infection. And they really have done just that. So let's talk about where we are in terms of vaccination. So it's been reported that about 8% of people have not come back for the second shot when they've gotten the two-shot regimen. Remember, J&J is just one. And I'll tell you, that that's a little bit concerning. But in other multi-shot vaccinations, HPV, hepatitis B, shingles is a two-shot regimen, it's typically much higher than 8%. So we need to really understand what's causing that. Is it inaccurate reporting if people have gone to a different location for the second shot? Is it hesitancy? So we're going to need to look more into that, but I won't get overly alarmed about the 8%. In, in terms of the number of daily vaccinations, remember at the beginning, it really was much more demand than supply. And now we're seeing in some ways more supply than demand based on some hesitancy about the vaccine. So at one point in April, we were typically three to four million vaccinations a day. Shots in the arm. Now we're about 2.6, 2.7 million, which I'll tell you is still pretty good and puts us on a very good path to get a much higher percentage of people immunized. But realistically, we do have to do a better job in reaching those people that are hesitant, in reaching a younger population. About 25% of people in general said they're not going to get it or thinking about it still. And I'll tell you, when people say they're still thinking about it, that usually means they're not inclined to get it. So how do we reach them? How do we reach people 18 to 24 that could be driving some of these new cases? And how do we encourage them to do it? Where I think we're going to see progress, Dan, is in the private sector having some initiatives to encourage vaccination. So there, there is a report in West Virginia that the government is giving $100 savings bonds to, to folks 18, uh, 16 to 35 if they get vaccinated. We'll see how that does. But where we're really going to see progress is over 100 colleges and universities have said to return to campus in the fall. You're going to have to be vaccinated against COVID, with some exceptions, religious or medical reasons. Houston Methodist Hospital recently announced that all employees are going to need to be vaccinated to be able to work there. You know, the EEOC has already said um, that folks, employers can require it. So that's something to keep in mind in terms of mandatory vaccination. I think we're going to see that in terms of travel, not necessarily a vaccine passport, but perhaps if you want to get on a plane. You want to go to a concert, you want to go to a sporting event, 
you may need to prove that you're vaccinated. That's where I think we're going to drive greater vaccination rates, particularly in younger population. Well, the other good news is we have to make it easier for people. And I don't know about where uh, if some of you have seen now there's vaccination sites in the mall. There's vaccination sites at gas stations. We're making it easier for people, given that we have more supply. And that's going to also help drive vaccination as well. And, you know, we often talk about that everyone's in the United States five miles from a pharmacy. But we also have to be realistic. If you don't have a car, if you don't have transportation, five miles is far. So in some areas, particularly in rural areas, we're starting to see public health officials bring the vaccine to individuals. And that's very encouraging news as well. So I think we're going to continue to see, um, you know, uptake in vaccinations. So I, I'm not overly you know, concerned. Let's talk about the variant. You know, we see a lot that's going on in India right now, which reminds us we're not safe until we're all safe. This is a pandemic. It is global in nature, which shows us the importance of getting everyone as best as we can vaccinated. But in terms of the variants, I, I want to point out that the Pfizer and the Moderna have demonstrated significant efficacy, typically around 90% against the known variants. AstraZeneca, not as much. The other important point is, you know, a lot of people are talking about boosters. We don't know if we're going to need boosters. And, and there's really been some misunderstanding about the efficacy and durability of the vaccine. So the studies have shown at six months, Pfizer and Moderna still 90% effective in general. The studies were only done for six months. Partly that's what's required, full FDA licensure. And sometimes people are construing that to mean it's only six months. It's not only six months. It's at least six months. And that's really an important point that I want to, to make so people understand that. You know, many experts think uh, it, it's going to be much longer, perhaps, you know, a couple years. So we don't yet know about boosters. And then I tell people, control what you can control. You can control whether you get vaccinated. You can't control right now whether we're going to need boosters. And the way to avoid boosters is to really prevent those variants uh, from being created and, and going further. You know, the other thing I want to talk about is testing, which is also another success story. We really haven't talked about that. You know, in general, right now, it's about 5% positivity. In January of this year, it was over 20% positivity rate. Again, tremendous progress. And the good news is that we have much more options for testing. So we have more accurate rapid tests. We, of course, we have PCR tests that are being done more quickly, but we also have over-the-counter tests and direct-to-consumer tests, and that's important because as we think about the summer, we have to remember, and this is really an important point, the summer 2021 is not the same as summer 2020, and it's the same for the fall. And what I mean by that is that anyone that says it's going to be the same honestly, it's, it's inaccurate because what do we have now? We have at least three safe and effective vaccines. We have a much more comprehensive testing ability and testing strategy. And we have multiple therapeutic options, which we did not have a year ago. We have monoclonal antibodies. We have remdesivir. 
We know the use of steroids. We know about the position of patients on ventilators. So this is all tremendous progress, which is very different than where we were same time last year. So when you talk about our school is going to be able to open in the fall, you know, what if we have more variants? Well, the fall is still going to be very different because we have these therapeutic options. We have more testing options to even be able to do at home. And remember, what happens in the school is a reflection of the community. And most school districts have announced they will return to five-day in-person learning. And the other point about it here in the United States is many of those districts are not going to offer a hybrid, are not going to offer the opportunity for virtual learning, except in very rare cases, typically in, in a private uh, program that would be funded. So it, the point I want to make is we really are making very good progress. I think we're going to continue to see incremental loosening of restrictions. We saw that with the CDC last week and the wearing of outdoor masks. I'm going to be honest, it's still a little confusing exactly how it's reported, but we're going to continue to see that loosening based on what's happening in terms of demographics. Um, so a lot of progress in, in terms of that decrement in the number of cases, number of hospitalizations, the number of deaths, still doing very well right now in terms of immunizations. I think we're going to make progress, especially in terms of the incentives that are going to be employed to get people who are hesitant to be vaccinated. I think we have rebuilt and continuing to rebuild our public health infrastructure. So we'll be able to be on alert for resurgence. And then I think, you know, it's a reminder in, in terms of all of us that, you know, really want to look for the future is that it's very different now than it was a year ago. And we have to be mindful of that and act like that as well. That doesn't mean that we still have work to do. There's still progress to be made. But where we are in you know, May of 2021 is a pretty good place right now. And with that, Dan, I'll turn it back to you. That's great. Maybe just a couple of things, uh, no. Dr. White. Uh, when you think about, is there any lessons learned from some of the other markets that are uh, a little farther along vaccination? I was thinking Israel, the UK, uh, you know, vaccine hesitancy might be different in the U.S. than there, but I think we've seen some real innovation on their parts to try and make sure we get to, you know, full vaccinations. Sure. And as you know, there's some areas of, of Europe that have, you know, more challenges in terms of vaccine hesitancy, particularly, you know, in France. Uh, you know, I think it's really about the communication strategy, which we have not done well with, you know, generation Zers in terms of why they should be vaccinated. And a challenge can be, as people start to see the decrease in cases, they think, oh, well, I don't need to now go get vaccinated because things are much better and I'll be okay. The point is we have to remind them about the long-term complications that can occur with COVID. It's not just about death or hospitalization. But Dan, I, I really think we're going to see more and more of those incentives. Look, people want to go back to the universities. They're going to get vaccinated. People want to go back to work to some degree they're going to get vaccinated. So I think we are going to make progress. And, and as I pointed out, we're, we're at 2.6, 2.7 million uh, shots in arms a day. That's still pretty good. Israel has done very well on this. And, and I think there are some you know, strategies that, that we can take from that. But it, it's being vigilant as well. That's great. Well, why don't we transition uh, to Dr. McGeer? Uh, great to have you. Thanks uh, for joining us today. And maybe uh, 
the Canadian perspectives might not quite be the same as the U.S. right now, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll give you the floor. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, we, I, I think we'd all like to be where the U.S. is now, which is a, an, an interesting reversal uh, for the last month. In fact, in, in Canada, we've been uh, had COVID rates and deaths that are above those in the United States. And that's, as, as John has pointed out, is an enormous credit to the speed of the vaccine rollout in the United States. Uh, and we're we're catching up a little bit in Canada. We had fewer vaccine supplies, and I think there's been a lot of uh, griping in Canada about the fact that we didn't have the same vaccine supply that Israel or the UK or the United States had. Uh, at the same time, I, I, we'd be fools not to recognize that uh, Operation Warp Speed is what has bought us these miraculous vaccines um, so quickly, and it really will only be a couple of months uh, before we'll have a vaccine supply that's um, able to get vaccine to as many arms as the U.S. So we're running six weeks or two months behind you on vaccine. We're at about 40% of eligible uh, people, so that's adults over the age of 16 in Canada have had their first dose. And we're pursuing, as many of you know, a the UK strategy, which is because we don't have enough vaccine to get everybody two doses, we're going for first dose into as many arms as possible. Um, and along with some level of public health restrictions. It will be, it, the next month is a real test because it's clear that across Canada, with the exception of Alberta, that our cases in wave three are starting to trend down. We just got, we were a little bit too far behind. We got the UK variant before many places in the United States did. And as a consequence, despite not releasing public health restrictions, we've seen this very large surge in the number of cases. And that disease is of course more severe. Um, and, and affecting younger people. Because our healthcare system has, relative to the US, many fewer beds, in particular ICU beds, um, this surge in cases which would have been tolerable in the healthcare system in the United States um, is really stretching our healthcare system. Um, we have field hospitals open and um, uh, additional ICU beds open in many hospitals and we are particularly in Alberta and Ontario very close to um, the edge of being able to manage patients in intensive care units um, in our hospital system. So good news other than Alberta is that cases are starting to decline. Uh, the challenge is going to be the, the question of whether the very rapid decline in the United Kingdom was because of first dose vaccines um, or because primarily of the very lockdown they had for that long period of time in, in February and March. Uh, if enough of it is vaccines, um, then Canada should be really starting to make progress in cases coming down uh, by the end of May. If most of it was the lockdown, then it's probably going to be the end of June before we get to 
uh, a state that we have few enough cases and enough vaccine that we can start to talk about relaxing restrictions. Now, I don't want to complain about that too much. It's It's been really difficult for everybody holding on to public health recommendations for the last month and, and two months to go is not pleasant. But as John pointed out, this is a, this is a remarkable achievement. It is amazing to see um, how quickly the vaccine rollout has worked, how safe vaccines are, um, how well we're doing. Um, with holding on to enough public health restrictions so that we can actually maintain the health system. So this is, um, in, in Canada, we still have uh, another month of really significant challenge to our healthcare system. Um, but as long as we can hold in for that month, um, then things are going to get much better. And and I I really agree. By the fall, we will definitely have in-person learning. Quebec already has in-person learning um, open all of the time now and are managing it. And um, we would have been okay in Ontario, I think, if we had managed the variants a little better. So come the fall, people will be back at school. Um, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be life the way we're, we're going to get to eventually. But there's no question that it, it's going to be much, much better. Our vaccines, as you'll notice in Canada, have been a little bit less Pfizer and Moderna and a little bit more AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca, like the Janssen vaccine, is a viral vectored vaccine. And we've recently recognized that the viral vectored vaccines are associated with very rare but severe adverse event that has a bunch of different names. I think we're settling on vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia. So that is caused by an immune system reaction that results in antibodies being made to platelets. Uh, and your platelets drop, but because when your platelets are destroyed, they, they stimulate uh, blood clotting, you end up with both very low platelet count and blood clotting in different veins all throughout the body. It's a, it, it's really uncommon, but it can be very severe. Uh, and so most countries, as Canada has, have put an age limit on how young, whether or not young people can get this vaccine. And that's a function of the fact that in the setting of a pandemic, so for people over 60 in Canada now, the risk of COVID and of ICU admission and death from COVID is very clearly much, much higher than the risk of getting vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia and developing serious illness. Makes a lot of sense to get an AstraZeneca vaccine and not to wait for later for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that you might have to wait for. Uh, for somebody who's 20, on the other hand, the risk of serious illness and death from COVID is much, much lower. Not nothing. Um, and, you know, the loss of taste and smell and the fatigue that's very common after COVID, even very young people, definitely something to be avoided. But the, the, your risk of serious illness from the vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia, even though it's incredibly small, is still significant not to be ignored. So in Canada, we have a break point of 30, over 30 um, you can get the vaccine in some provinces. Under 30, um, it's only Pfizer and Moderna. 
Um, and I imagine as we start to get Janssen that we'll make the same decisions because the, the, the rate of adverse events in Janssen and AstraZeneca seem to be relatively similar. So uh, I'm, I'm really happy to be here today and to be bringing much better news about what the summer and fall is going to look like. As John has pointed out, it's really too early to tell. Um, but as John says, this is a one step at a time process. We'll figure it out as we go. And where we are now is just so much amazingly better than where we were a year ago. Um, and knowing we're going in the right direction is uh, enormously reassuring. Thanks, Dan. That's great. Um, maybe uh, just a quick conversation between the two of you on uh, the mobility of variants. Um, Obviously, India in the news today, uh, and to be honest, I'm not sure which variant they have, but it appears to be uh, a strong and uh, maybe similar to the British one, much more contagious um, and moving through their society. But what does the mobility of variants feel like? Uh, and as we reopen, obviously, that becomes a bit of a challenge. Uh, but what have you observed? What would we you know, be hoping the governments are thinking about uh, as we think about that? Maybe first to you, Dr. Wade. Yeah, you know, something that we haven't done well for a while, which we're doing better now, is actually doing the sequencing, the testing for the variants. What, what people may not um, recognize is that every test does not go to look for variants. It's a more sophisticated and complicated testing strategy. And Europe actually has done much better in terms of looking for those variants and then testing whether vaccination will continue uh, to be successful. And, and, and to be honest, variants often don't evade vaccines, and, and that's encouraging news. Um, a, a good friend of mine, Dr. Topol, from Scripps will sometimes refer to them as scariants, that we need to be cognizant of them, we need to recognize them, we need to look for them and, and test against them, but we don't want to be overly alarmist about it. The key strategy with this is to remind people the way that we protect from viruses mutating is not letting them survive. Mm -hmm. And the way you do that is by trying to reach herd immunity by getting as many people vaccinated uh, in the country that you can. Do you, do you agree with that, Allison? Yeah, indeed. I think it's, it's going to be an enormous challenge because we do know that if you stop travel, you can stop the introduction, well, can't stop the introduction events, you can slow them down. Uh, and that might have some benefits. On the other hand, it's also got enormous external consequences. And it doesn't remove all of it. So, you know, by the time a country has recognized the variant, it's already been exported. So you saw the moment the reporting came from India, um, every province in Canada went looking and found the variant. So you might slow things down a bit, but you're definitely not gonna stop them. And, and clearly the best approach to variants um, is just to say, we need everybody vaccinated. Uh, and we need that, that needs to be true around the world. The way to deal with this virus is to get vaccines to look at ourselves as one planet and to get vaccine to everybody as quickly as we can. Um, one of the interesting questions that uh, I've seen posed a few places is the idea that you may still catch COVID, right? We're only at, in, I think you used this stat, 90%. So it's 10% risk, you could still get it. Um, I've read some really interesting information that what actually, how you are affected 
goes way down. So severity of COVID, if you catch it after, uh, chance of fatality going way down, uh, that may be unfounded on my part. Any observations on that? Dr. White, maybe I'll start uh, with you. Sure. Remember, the, the vaccines really were meant to be designed, you know, very quickly to prevent serious infection and hospitalization. And that's what they do great. So they really weren't uh, studied early on in terms of the endpoints about what you're kind of referring to this asymptomatic spread, that you could still get it, you don't develop symptoms, but then it's in your, your nasal cavity, your oropharynx, and you're spreading it around to others. The good news, Dan, is there's some encouraging data that shows, uh, particularly from the UK and from Israel, that the vaccines may actually prevent asymptomatic spread. That would be great news. That's why we still wear the masks quite a bit too, to prevent that asymptomatic transmission. So we don't know yet, but as I point out, there are some encouraging data about it. Encouraging data that, as you just said, if you do happen to get COVID after you've been vaccinated, you're much less likely to get severe disease. So we, we move it from uh, a significant risk of hospitalization and death to something that is closer to a common cold or influenza-like illness, just a fever and feeling miserable for a couple of days and, and getting better. And that may be what we need to settle for, that we transition it from the very dangerous disease it is now to something that is an an ongoing problem, it, not that it doesn't ever cause illness, but its illness is much less severe. Uh, and if, if, if we could make COVID-19 a common cold, um, that might not be perfect, but it would certainly do. And just in terms of those breakthrough cases you refer to, you know, it's actually less than 6,000 here in the United States to get COVID after vaccination. It is very, very unusual. And even in Canada, where we've only been getting one dose of vaccine to most people, the percentage of cases that are in vaccinated people is something on the order of 1%. So you really do get a dramatic level of protection, even with a single dose to many people in the population. Yeah, I, I think this is one of the most powerful speeches as to those that are hesitant as to why you get it, right? Never mind your community duty. Uh, for your benefit, I've got the AstraZeneca vaccine a few weeks ago. Uh, I would have not enjoyed my first 24 hours. Uh, but, you know, once that was up, it was over. And uh, my drive was all community, right? What am I doing for my community and those that are around me uh, as we move forward? Um, what about the chance that we're going to see a good export of uh, excess vaccine from the U.S. to Canada? What kind of bets would you put on that? <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting. We, we don't actually need that much vaccine anymore. We have, um, we have vaccine coming. Not that we haven't been grateful for the loan of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, uh, but we, in a, in a couple of months, we'll actually have enough vaccine on our own. Um, and hopefully both the U.S. and Canada will then be sharing it with other folk. That's great. Um, with that, why don't, we, uh, why don't we move on to the next part of our agenda? and uh, bring in our, our market experts. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, we'll come back with uh, some questions that we've gotten through the chat uh, as, uh, as we wrap up. Um, next on our agenda is uh, uh, our team from BMO. And uh, first off, uh, we've got Earl Davis up. And uh, Earl, I welcome you to the floor and uh, give us some insights as you see it 
uh, over the first 100 days and what you're watching for as we move forward. Thank you, Dan, and uh, welcome, everyone. Um, from our seat, you know, Vine has had an excellent uh, first 100 days, you know, based upon at least what the markets are telling us. You know, we're seeing upgrade forecast to growth, upgraded forecast to inflation. You know, it's buoying risk assets across the spectrum. Um, but having said that, those same upgraded forecasts for growth and inflation are leading to higher yields, which means lower bond prices, which means losses year to date in bond portfolios. You know, and as the head of fixed income and uh, money markets, I get the question, Earl, is fixed income dead? Is, do we have a place for bonds still, given, you know, the forecast for the next few years uh, that look pretty robust? And I'd say, hey, 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 don't give up on bonds. You know, there's definitely a place for bonds um, in a properly uh, constructed portfolio that allows for solid risk adjusted returns in all environments. And I'd even take this year, for example, you know, if you say bonds are down one to 5%, so call it 4%. You look at equities in North America, they're up 11%. You know, in a 60-40 portfolio, you're still talking seven plus percent return year to date. That's outstanding. And you know what? And the importance of having bonds is that it's prudent to have duration. Because although we're prepared for, you know, tactically prepared for higher rates, um, that path is not clear. <laughs> you know, surprises happen. Um, you look at history, you look at present day, we're not that fundamentally different in regards to why you have to hold bonds. You know, you look, um, equities are near all time highs. Geopolitical risks that are as prevalent as ever. You know, I've read articles where our relations or US relations with Russia haven't been as bad since the Cold War. You know, and you know, they're not that much better with China, at least economically. And then you add in the volatility in the Middle East, the possible variants. Uh, there's a lot of reason to hold duration just to be prudent. You know, so that's very important to know. Um, but having said that, I do acknowledge the, the uh, owning duration at these low rates, as people say, it's an asymmetric bet, right? You do get uh, at most 100 cents on the dollar par on your bonds when they mature and you get a fixed coupon, um, which... Um, highlights the importance of diversification within fixed income, you know, from where are you on the duration curve? Where are you in credit? Is it cyclicals? Are you protected from inflation? And also, um, uh, I would say, where are you versus passive versus active management? You know, uh, with passively managed funds, you get 100% of the gain, but you also get 100% of the losses. Where an active manager could protect you from uh, those losses, limit it to under 100%, but yet get you over 100% uh, in gains. And the analogy I like to use in these environments is uh, what I call sailing versus rolling. You know, when the skies are blue, uh, the winds and, you know, what interest rates are just coming down like they have been for the past 30, 40 years, all you need to do is put up your sail and the winds will blow you to a nice retirement on that white beach in the Caribbean, uh, blue seas, um, it's all good. But when, the, when it starts to cloud over up there and you start getting these winds and gusts and high waves, you know what? It's time to put down the sails and take out the oars. You know, you need to row in this water. You need, in case the winds start pushing you towards the cliffs or, or the edge, edge of the rock edge, you need to row away from that. Same thing with the reefs. And you know what? Rowing, which I see as active management, will get you to those, to those white sand beaches. You know, so it's important to know that in regards to uh, diversification and and the importance of active versus passive uh, management. Uh, the other thing too is um, to note in this environment, like I said, it's not fundamentally different from history. 
There's no guarantee that bonds will still provide you that insurance aspect um, in risk-off modes, but we feel confident that, you know what, given where we are today in levels, you know, being long bonds and uh, having some duration prudently uh, will we'll ensure that we have, um, you know, the returns that, that investors are looking for. And um, before passing it on to Brian, uh, there's one thing I'd like to say, I'm, I'm extremely optimistic of the future. Um, you know, coming out of the dog days, or at least economic dog days of, of, of COVID, you know, we're on a path to, to fiscal and financial stability. But more importantly, uh, what has been brought to awareness is environmental stability and sustainability is very important. You know, when we get to those white sand beaches, we don't want them flooded. And I think that that's been heightened as well as um, the importance of social sustainability has been uh, raised. You know, we want to make sure we live in a, co live in a cohesive environment, which is very, very important. And um, I'll leave you with this little bit of uh, fixed income trivia. What do you think was the fastest growing area of fixed income in 2020? I would bet a lot of people would say government debt. And the answer is no. You know, although the magnitude has been large in trillions, it's not the fastest growing area. Next guess is probably corporate debt. And I would say, no, again, it's social bonds. They grew sevenfold in 2020. And those are bonds where the proceeds are used for it to benefit society socially. And the growth trajectory of that is expected to continue. Even though it's coming from a low base, it's expected to continue. And that makes me feel very optimistic and confident about the future for not only my retirement, but for that of, of my child's, you know, and the generations to come. And with that, I'll uh, hand it over to Brian. I was going to ask you a couple of quick questions, Earl, if that's all right. For sure. Um, so what are you, uh, how are you feeling about inflation and the impact then on rates? Uh, yeah, there's a lot discounted in inflation now. I do feel it will be higher. Uh, the question that uh, Governor Powell has brought up is, is it going to be transitory and sustainable? There's a lot of arguments to say that uh, it's going to be sustainable in regards to, you know, supply constraints we're seeing, uh, the amount of money that's been printed um, and pent up demand once we come out of COVID. But equally, there's arguments that say, you know what, maybe the technology advances that we're seeing in the past uh, year will bold to higher productivity, which lowers inflation. There's also the arguments that, you know what, as people come back into the labor force, uh, that could increase productivity. Um, so I, I would say the arguments are biased towards higher inflation, but there's things to say uh, that inflation may be maintained. You look at, you know, people aren't going to be driving to work anymore. That had a huge, uh, plays a huge impact on CPI in regards to the gas usage and oil. So I'm, I'm balanced view. I'd say 60-40 higher inflation, but um, it's not going to be a straight line. So we're prepared for it to uh, to level out after the end of this year and before it goes higher. again. That's great. Thanks, Earl. Um, Brian, why don't we get uh, the equity perspective from you? And then I'll have some questions for the two of you well, after. Well, thank you, Mr. Barkley. It's an honor to be here uh, again for these calls. Uh, we always enjoy those. And then it's great to have Earl uh, be an ad to the call. Uh, this time around, um, I just have two words for everyone. And those two words are reality wins, reality wins. So Brian, what does that mean? If you look at the last 100 days, let alone the last 400 days in this notion of perception versus reality, reality wins. Over the last 100 days, uh, the perception uh, was that a democratic 
sweep in Congress and in the White House was going to kill equity prices and kill the economy. And the reality is that uh, stock, stocks in the U.S. are hitting new highs and Canada's not too far behind. The economy is recovering. Earnings uh, for the first quarter uh, topped estimates by 10 full percentage points with well over 80% of the companies beating uh, their, their estimates. And more and more companies are once again giving fiscal year guidance. That's the reality. The perception is that the market is tired and needs to have a deep correction. The reality is uh, that U.S. Uh, equities as an asset remain the best asset in the world from a high quality standpoint, from a sustainability standpoint, a word that you've heard several times during this presentation, but also a clairvoyance and a clarity standpoint. Again, Canada is not too far behind. If you go back over the last 400 days, reality also defeated perception. We did not go into the next Great Depression. The consumer did carry us through this. The economy did recover. And the Fed in the U.S. and the Bank of Canada in Canada in both governments with respect to their fiscal stimulus plans, all of those plans worked. So the market in the economy, for that matter, have really been driven by fear for the most part for the last 20 years in our lens. It exacerbated during the Great Recession of 12 years ago, uh, crescendoed in March of 2020. And now we're getting back to the point where we're actually believing, I think, from a societal standpoint, Dan, and from an investor standpoint, that North America, from an asset perspective, is the best place to be. So just using some of the great statistics and analysis that we received from our great chief economist, Doug Porter, in Canada and Michael Greger in the U.S., we take a look at where the trajectory of GDP is going. In fact, Canada, according to their current numbers, could outperform the U.S. in terms of just uh, annual GDP in 2022. We're talking about 4.5% uh, GDP growth in Canada in 2022 and they just upped their numbers to 4.3% GDP in the United States. This is off of uh, off of a negative GDP in 2020, where we had almost 10% unemployment in Canada. We're gonna get down to eight this year and six uh, in 2022 percentage points, according to our economics team. And in the US, we were at 8% unemployment in 2020. Uh, and by 2022, we're gonna be sub 4% again, which is very, very telling. And, and I think that is the reality. So what does that mean for investors? Earl did a wonderful job talking about inflation. I, for my part, this is my 31st year on Wall Street, and we've been waiting for uh, inflation for 39 years. Our kind of uh, phrase on that was continue to wait. Uh, don't fight the Fed. Mr. Paul has been very clear with respect to the transitory risk, as Earl talked about. But also you have to keep in mind the importance of last August's pivot by the Fed when they move their mandate away from inflation and toward employment, this is all about employment. Remember last year in these calls, we talked about this is about 2020 growth uh, and what the numbers are going to be. Well, guess what? We've seen that. It's been reflected in equity prices. Earnings are beating and the economy are beating expectations, which we knew that was going to be. And that had been our forecast all along from a strategy perspective and from an economic perspective. But now this is about employment and this is about employment levels getting back uh, close, closer to where we were pre-pandemic, fourth quarter 2019, the first quarter 2020. And according to our economics team, we're going to get closer to that in 2022. So I think this notion of when the Fed is going to change, don't fight the Fed when they're changing their path. And it's pretty clear that they're not going to do anything through 
most of 2022. And I know the market wants more detail and wants to start talking about tapering, Dan, but it's going to be a while. So uh, why is that? Well, you've heard on this call alone, uh, the, the volatility with respect to the, the, the variant and the virus in other areas outside of North America. It was really interesting. Dr. McGeer talked about how Canada is six to eight weeks behind um, the U.S. in terms of the vaccine. Well, so too with respect to what you're seeing with, uh, in terms of equity performance, but also GDP. That's why I think GDP and equity performance actually could be even better uh, in Canada in 22, 2022. I'm sorry. So that being said, from an investment standpoint, we continue to favor North American stocks well over other areas of the world. Our constant theme has been as America goes, so goes Canada. And it's not too uh, coincidence that we're overweight economic sectors uh, the same way in both countries, namely financials, materials, industrials, and consumer discretionary. The consumer in the U.S., as we said in the beginning, has been the strength of this economy. We've always said this. It's going to continue as well, especially with 70 percent uh, of the economy uh, going that way. We remain overweight from a three to five year perspective, if anybody cares about three to five year views, technology, communication services, and consumer discretionary, especially given where we're seeing the themes and the best stocks there. So I'll leave you with this, Dan. Uh, we believe that active portfolio management is going to win. We have entered a stock picking fundamental theme from the bottoms up. We want to buy themes and companies. And we don't want to be too overly positioned in passive assets. We want to own portfolios and really relish the fact that in both Canada and the United States, we have some wonderful companies, wonderful themes. And remember, after all, the stock market is a market of stocks. And we have entered the second half of our 20-year bull market call where it's going to be driven by fundamental themes and bottom-up stock picking. And with that, I'm going to hand it back to my, my boss, colleague, Mr. Dan Barkley. <laughs> well, I, uh, I sense a bullishness to your, uh, your feeling. Um, why don't uh, are, maybe one of the topics bullish, that's floating around? <laughs> I know you are. Uh, why don't we uh, just quickly? One of the things that's running through uh, current headlines today is the housing market and the impact uh, of the housing market. Uh, you know, maybe early you first. Do you feel like there's a bubble there, Canada, U.S.? Do you feel like it's going to burst, or is it something that uh, we should have confidence in for a while? I think it's something we should have confidence in for. Uh at least a couple of years, you know, for one of the reasons that Brian touched upon, you know, when the U.S. does well, we do well. You know, 75% of our uh, exports goes to U.S. still. That's down from 85%, but still significant, right? That's a good reason to, to buoy the economy here heading into 2022. Um, that's one side of the equation. I think it's also important to think about the other side of the equation, the ability to lend uh, for mortgages and to continue buying houses. And you're seeing all the loan loss provisions across North America, all the big uh, U.S. and Canadian banks are lowering them. Right? And that's a direct reflection of the, the expected growth that we're going to have. Um, you know, we took a lot of contingencies last year for losses that, you know, we're putting back. We know we're not going to have to use those, ideally, knock on wood. Um, but that's money that could go into mortgages and capital for housing. So uh, both from a supply and demand, like supply of uh, capital for houses and demand for it, you know, there's a lot to uh, say it's going to be good for at least a couple of years. Thanks, Earl. Brian? We would echo those sentiments. People have to remember. Well, we would echo those sentiments. Um, 
we would echo what Earl had to say, that people have to kind of remember that in 2018, rates were going up in the United States and around the world, but especially the United States, and a lot of supply came off the market, and we weren't seeing new home sales, uh, let alone new home construction, uh, like we are now. And given this fact that we've seen changes with respect to demographic, people moving out of big cities, last week they announced uh, some new changes in the House of Representatives in terms of of what that is doing in terms of uh, those states picking up a seat and those states losing a seat. And it's very clear that that people want to change uh, in terms of where they're living. And that's going to cause uh, some new supply to need to be on the market. With respect to Canada, the Canadian housing, uh, since I've been at BMO nine years, we've been waiting for the housing bubble. And uh, uh, Mr. Porter, who's the economist, has a great slide saying, where's the housing bubble? And we continue to look for it. Canada as, an, as a consumer, Canadians as a consumer are much more conservative. And so when they get scared, uh, they pull their house off the market, which we saw a lot of in 2019. And so we're starting to see uh, a lot more demand, obviously, with the with the lower money rates and things. And, and per Earl's comment, I think this is all about the next two years in terms of, of the path of interest rates, Dan. And as interest rates remain low, the housing market will remain very, very strong. Uh, I agree with both those comments. Um, I thought we'd do a quick little discussion on kind of one of the big themes rolling through the market today is ES, uh, ESG. Uh, Earl, you did a good piece there on the social side. Um, why don't I uh, go to you, Earl, on is there a green premium in the market, things that are more ESG friendly? Does that work? Uh, and then, Brian, I'll come to you on, you know, how's it affecting the investor base and what are they doing differently? So, Earl, first to you. So I'd say right now there is a green premium just because there's a lot of investors who want to invest in green and, and not as much supply. But the good thing about that is it, it'll bring more uh, supply. You know, I think it, it allows for the companies in Alberta to, to do to issue transition bonds uh, to have less reliance on oil. So I think uh, there definitely is a premium, but that's going to bring more supply. And I, I think, you know, within the next couple of years, we'll have a more balanced market. Uh, and a market with with sustainable demand. You know, it's tremendous the demand. I'm going to put one interesting fact about sustainable bonds and why there's so much demand as well too. A lot of the talent is going towards sustainability. Millennials they want to work where they know they're making a difference in the world. And because of that, you see all the big funds in in the world are issuing um, issue, opening up sustainable funds. So they want to invest in sustainable bonds, or else they're going to lose talent. And this is what I call a virtuous cycle. And I love it, and it, it, it bolts well for the future. Brian, how's it impacting the way you think about the world? Well, I'll tell you, Dan, uh, a lot of investing the last 20 years has been defined, uh, helped being defined by quantitative models. And what we're really seeing is the sustainability side, whether or not you want to call it ESG or not, the, the screening mechanisms for looking at companies from retailers to restaurants to banks to oil companies to miners, uh, we're seeing increased uh, reflection on sustainability. And I think it's been it's been helpful based on the legacy of being a quantitative investor. It's helped this whole ESG fad. So I think that's marvelous. Uh, and it's helping some clarity with respect to how to look at sustainability. But I also want to remind people that some of the, well, let's say that are maybe not environmentally friendly companies like coal companies or, or oil companies. Oil companies are actually uh, one of the largest investors in sustainability and have been for a long time. And this echoes back toward, uh, if you go back 12 years during the Obama administration, um, some of the energy companies and utility companies were the largest investors in research and development 
and solar and sustainability. So this is a trend that's been gone on for a long time. And I think now it's hitting the public marketplace. And I think people are becoming more comfortable, Dan, using these measures and really understanding what they're all about. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think we've seen uh, a real increase in sophistication on what does it mean and how does it work? Um, I thought I'd transition to our last topic to talk about uh, global implications uh, of vaccine, vaccine policy. Uh, Dr. White, you've spoken uh, a number of times, United Nations level, as we think about that, as you post out and think next three months, six months, 12 months, 18 months, uh, help us think about the global environment around uh, the vaccines and COVID and what might change uh, in your mind, good and bad, right? Preferably good, yeah. but <laughs> as I'm a natural optimist, but I'll take both. Yeah, it, it, you know, I've been talking a little bit about we have this vaccine nationalism approach that we're very focused just on the United States or perhaps just in North America. And we forget that by definition, a pandemic is global in nature and we're not safe until we're all safe. You know, the other issue about India, other than just the issue of the variants and transmissibility, is the vaccine manufacturing process. For much of the world, the vaccines are very much manufactured in India. So how is that going to impact uh, supply in terms of the, the global world? And, and what COVID has taught us, and we talked about this many months ago, that we never really connected public health and the business world. And COVID has taught us that they're very well connected. So I, I do have a, a bit concerns about that we're not um, being as global in our perspective as we need to. I think there's been a few changes. We're rejoining the World Health Organization. We're talking about donations, particularly to the developing world, where, where even health providers often haven't been vaccinated yet. So the next few months are going to be very pivotal in terms of what we see going on in India and around the world in terms of getting more and more people vaccinated. And that's going to take a little while, just, just to be honest. So the key is going to be in the United States and in North America and Canada, uh, get as many people vaccinated now to protect against potential variants. So we've heard lots of hope and optimism on this call. Uh, Dr. McGear, as you reflect on the last 12 months, I'm sure it's been trying. Uh, it's had upsides. Uh, but as you look back over the year, uh, what would be some of your big takeaways uh, this year? Well, you know, one of the critically important ones, I think, is the, the value of, of science and innovation and the remarkable achievement of Operation Warp Speed that was a collaboration between government and industry to turn out these miraculous vaccines in uh, an amount of time that anybody would have said was unbelievable um, uh, only a year ago. So I, to me, it, it really validates how important it is to have science and innovation backing up the development of um, everything. But uh, for me as a physician, vaccines, medications, new developments in medicine, um, uh, but it's also a, a, a just an amazing accomplishment of, of you know what can be done with government and industry collaborating on on important public health issues. Dr. White, same question. Takeaways from the year that uh, you're uh, inspired by? 
You know, I, I'm also inspired by the innovation that we've seen in the health space. And we haven't always given credit to that amazing innovation. In some ways, we've miscommunicated and people have been cautious that these have been developed so quickly. But it's also, Dan, in the role of tech in general in terms of health, how we really pivoted to providing more medical care in the home. And that's going to be something that's sustained uh, in a post-COVID world, the use of digital apps and digital tech. So it's really the power of innovation, the power of science. We we have challenged science at times over the past year, but that's been the amazing success that we've witnessed. I think those are both both great takeaways. Earl, U.S. 10-year Treasury year-end this year. What's the number? Uh, 225 stalls out, and I, I think there will be a lot of buyers there of uh, U.S. Treasury, so roughly 50 basis points uh, higher. And remember, we've sold off 100 okay. already <laughs> this year. <laughs> so, yeah. And Brian, so that, that's going to mess with your forecast a bit. Where, where are you going to be? You know what it is? Thanks a lot, Earl. End of the year. <laughs> well, we are officially at 4,200. <laughs> right now in the markets there. So let's let's see where that goes. And then 19,500 for Canada, but we expect stocks to be higher at year end and we expect, expect stocks, I'm sorry, a year from now to be a lot higher. Uh, I'm conscious of the time, so let me, uh, let me wrap. First off, let me say thank you uh, to the four of you for joining us today. Uh, this was our third installment uh, of our Road to Recovery series. Uh, we hope you've all enjoyed those. Uh, we've got some more to come. Uh, what you heard today was uh, a speech about hope and optimism. Uh, for those based in Toronto, this can be a challenging topic uh, in that we're living in a world with uh, some real challenges and lockdowns. Uh, but I know from our U.S. colleagues, we're really starting to see uh, the change uh, in what it may be. Uh, we had a good conversation on the markets and why we think they're constructive in the most asset classes as we move forward. And uh, I share that same view. Uh, To all those that dialed in, uh, we appreciate your time. We appreciate it. We hope you got a lot out of this call. Uh, Any questions, please reach out to uh, your BMO reps. And uh, that's all for today. Thanks very much. Uh, Biden's first 100 days and the road to recovery. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. 
BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public disclosure slash.